Hello, I'm Simon Rimmer and this is Grilling, a podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues in which I speak to some of our finest chefs about their passion for food. We've been exploring what got them into cooking and what drives them forward. Now, hopefully, providing you with a few insights that will improve your skills in the kitchen along the way. Uh, we talk barbecues too, of course, and, and how to get the best out of them in all seasons. Speaking of which, we're giving away a state-of-the-art Weber barbecue in every single episode. Today, it's the turn of one of Britain's most lovable and loved chefs, Tom Kerridge. Having had a few acting roles as a kid, yes, really, Tom decided to go to catering college and worked in several top kitchens before opening the Hand and Flowers Gastro Pub in 2005. Now, that became the first pub in the world ever to gain not one but two Michelin stars in 2012 and the coach also in Marlowe has a Michelin star too he's also on the telly more than me uh, <laughs> that, is, that is a complete lie that is not true there's no one on telly more than you you're on more than Piers Morgan I, I do do my very best Tom it is it is so brilliant to have you on and also what I must reveal is that you are the starting point for this entire podcast because when I was trying to put together an idea for a podcast I remember a conversation with you about White Heat that book White Heat Michael Peer was but yeah. being that pivotal point in your life and it was that that made me think that's what I really like that's what I like about people where whether it be intentional accidental or a combination of the two that leads to a pivotal point in your life and that was that which which we'll come on to later but your world now is massive you know you, you have become so synonymous with everything to do with Cajun in fact you know we, we're running late today because you've just been on a zoom call um where you actually just pitching yourself to be the next Prime Minister, I think, isn't it? <laughs> no, but it was a Zoom call of um, the, a lot of leading hospitality experts, big hoteliers, uh, contract caterers, just people that have been in the industry for so long, like people with MBEs and OBEs that are sat on this call calling for a minister for hospitality, you know, and we, you know, and it's it's actually much bigger than that. You can't just have a minister for hospitality. You need the ministry underneath it. And that's, yeah. it's such a big network because hospitality, I know it's a little boring, but, you know, if, in, in terms of politics, I know that's not what we're here for, but, no, 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 you know, but, but pub, pubs, and, pubs and restaurants sit in one ministry and hotels and travel and tourism sit in another. So there's no actual synergy, which probably explains why so much of the coronavirus mixed messaging has been going on, because hospitality, they try to lump into one group, except it's two different ministries that are coming up with the ideas and whatever else. And it's so disjointed. And well, if you're going to lump it all together, let's at least have a ministry and a minister that understands the whole of the industry. Do you almost feel that come the other side of, of, of this pandemic, that if that is what happens, and I completely agree with it, that you almost think there's a positive to come out of it, that almost the recognition that the hospitality industry is such a core throughout, well, the world, but if we we talk about kind of Britain, the number of people who work in it, what we all think about it, and what everyone's been missing is that ability to go out and have a bite to eat. Yeah, uh, Do do you know what? One of the biggest things that I think we've all recognised that we miss isn't just the product of what hospitality sells. Because, again, this is, comes down to the government and the powers that are looking at it. They, they look at it going, it sells food and it sells alcohol. Great. We can all get that. Everybody's got that buying it from the supermarkets or whatever. Else. They've still been able to, you know, order some posh wines from delivery or buy 24 cans of cheap lager from the corner shop. It doesn't really matter. We've all been able to do that throughout the whole of the pandemic, through lockdown, through the, the summer months, wherever. However. What we've all found, I think, as pub goers or restaurant goers or just general public is 
actually the thing we've missed is social connection. Yeah. It is the ability, what hospitality offers is so much more. And it is that recognition of how important it is moving forward as an industry, but also in terms of the greater good of the economy. You need hospitality to be the, that kind of engine room, the, the oil that the, the makes everything smooth within the country, the running of it. And I'm not just talking about nice restaurants. I'm talking about coffee shops. I'm talking mm. about, you know, budget hotels that are so important for people on business that are traveling and somewhere to stay, whether it's ordering a room service club sandwich. Just, just everything to do with hospitality is such that beating heart of connecting people in every industry. It is so important. And that's why it should be looked after and, I suppose, recognised and given so much support because hospitality is, I think, the, the, the driving force of helping the rest of the economy get bigger and better and stronger. You know, bear in mind that we've got to come through the coronavirus crisis and then we're walking straight ahead into the Brexit um, issues. <laughs> that are, You know, there is going to be so, there's so much uncertainty. No one knows where it's going. It's going to take years for it all to unravel. And if you've shut down hospitality after that, I mean, where are people going to negotiate Brexit deals? Where are people going to like? What's happening here? We need it all there to be able for people to be able to sit down and build their new trade deals and their new ideas of moving forward. Corporate entertainment, weddings, just people's lives getting back to normal. There's so much about it that needs, I suppose, wrapping up in cotton wool and being able to drive forward. It's funny because that whole thing about normality, I remember after the big lockdown, if you like, I remember when you could go and get a cup of coffee. There's a little independent coffee shop called California that's around the corner from where I am. You had to phone to kind of get your order. And people were queuing around the block. And you're there going thinking, why am I queuing around the block? I can make myself a cup of coffee. It is that thing about what hospitality means, just that feeling of, of actually interaction with other people and that whole thing about a drink, some food. It's so important. It's massive, yeah. It is. You know, We can all make cups of coffee at home and we can all yeah. buy cans of lager and sit there at home or open a bottle of wine. That isn't what it's about. It is about that social connection. And that's why it's so much more important for things like sporting events to be back to normal and people's just all those bits where people spend time with each other. Well, I mean, coming back to, to if you like, the, the core of the podcast, certainly when we've done these, the ones where I'm face to face with somebody like I am with you now, I'll see a bit of body language and you read it and you go, oh, there's something in that little story there. And that's that's what we all do. As human beings. Exactly. It's the main point in it. You can tell that there's a little, just a slight hesitating or a, a hand movement or a thing or a something. that, Or you can tell by people's expression that you can see a glint in their eye that they really want to tell you something a bit more or do something. And you just don't get that on Zoom. You get it. You know, that's where that kind of social interaction is so important and relaxing as well. You know, you need downtime from working very hard. You need downtime. You need to be able to have that release. And, and hospitality opens that up as well. Yeah. Speaking of body language, incidentally, when I was kind of in the middle of saying something, then Tom was checking his phone just because obviously he's seen he's had more interesting. No, I got offer. three. I got, <laughs> I, I, my, my, I got three three missed calls at the same point as that was going on, and I was very worried that it was Boris Johnson uh, ringing me up and asking who I do I recommend Simon Rimmer as <laughs> as the minister for hospitality, and the answer to that would most definitely be yeah. Oh, I couldn't think of a better man to represent us. It's so charming. This is why. <laughs> This is why everybody loves you, Kerridge. All right, let, let, let's get down to the nitty-gritty of it. Now, I, I sort of mentioned in the intro that when you were a kid, you were a world-famous actor. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Well, no, so what happened was... So I, I was at school, and I quite, I quite enjoyed school. I didn't do very well in terms of exams, but I wasn't 
the naughtiest kid and hated school and was anti-establishment and just a, it just it just didn't really connect with that whole sitting down listening to somebody tell you something remembering it and then writing it out for an exam it wasn't really me i i i love school i love the interaction with kids hanging around you know i like being around the naughty boys the slightly anti-establishment <laughs> kids but i left school with, with not very much and i kind of dosed around for a couple of years between that and like the ages of 16 and 18 doing very little I was supposed to be on a yts course but i didn't really engage with that or go to it was just but doing I was, what I, I can't actually remember i think it was in a local <laughs> school but it was it was just i was just i just i didn't really go to that very much it was 27 pound 50 a week or yeah. whatever it was it was just kind of like i mean it was pretty i mean it was almost pointless wasn't it so it but you couldn't sign on then or you couldn't and yeah. i didn't have the education to go into higher education also i didn't want it so it was yeah. kind of like so what do i do where do i go and i was I have to be honest, my mum and me deep down, I was never worried about what I was going to do. I knew something would turn up. I was always going to, whether it was being a, I don't know, driving a van, whether it was being a builder, whether it was, it was always going to be something that I go, do you know what, I'll be all right at this. And does that come from your mum? Yeah, a lot of it does. I mean, my mum, actually, I think probably people and hospitality comes from my mum. My mum's great. So I grew up as a single parent family. My mum used to cook. She used to cook um, Sunday lunch on a Sunday, knowing full well. So there'd be we go to I go to rugby training on a Sunday morning. My, my brother was in a. a Your brother older or younger than you? Younger, he's yeah. a couple of years, two and a half years younger. So he would go and play for one team. I'd play for another, and we'd doss about and whatever else. And then we come back to our house, and more often than not, we bring kids with us. Yeah. Teams, you know, kids, and we. My mum had always done an, enough like vegetables and bits and bobs for everybody to have something to eat. Not loads of people, but she always knew that we'd bring people back. And it's actually only now that I recognise and I look back and I go. Where I grew up and how I grew up, you don't recognise it as being poor or indifferent or a bit broken or other kids from really broken backgrounds. Because we were, you know, it was my mum Where did you grow up, Tom? I grew up in Gloucester. Right. So so I grew up in the centre of Gloucester and the school I went to was like in the middle of three estates and it was kind of, it was an all boys comprehensive school. So it was like, it was a little bit, my mum called it the school of life. It was a little bit (laughs) bumpy around the edges. But actually once you're in it, you don't recognise, you don't see that it was quite, you know, a little bit rogue. I look yeah. back at it now and I go and I look at some of the kids and some of the kids that I grew up with and, and you think, my God, their families were, I mean, I thought mine was just normal, but, it, you know, my mum and dad split up and it was just fairly, it was a very normal background. I didn't see it as anything different. It's only now when you come out of it and you look back and you go, God, our background is not too dissimilar to so many people, but it was a little bumpy. And then you look at so many of the other kids that were at school and you go, my God, it was really dysfunctional, very little money, very, like it was really bad and it's only it's only now that you can recognize how hard it must have been for those parents so my mum as being a part of that was always like if somebody come to the back door and was gonna have a bit of lunch i didn't think anything different the the kid that we brought back was like this is amazing i'm having roast potatoes because they probably didn't have it for my mum she was doing something that she thought was quite good and it was you know at least at least rob or or jason or whatever it is we come back has had something to eat and you go, okay. And I think that comes from my mum, that understanding of going, let's just be generous. I th- you know, Simon, you're in hospitality. Yeah. And I'm sure everybody that you've interviewed for this, the best hospitality people are about generosity. You know, the Definitely. ones that have done well in it is about, we don't, it's not about money. All right, businesses have to make money. They have to make a profit so you can progress, so you can fix a boiler yeah. or a glass washer or whatever else. Yeah. But it's not about that. You, you, they generate because you're warm and hospitable and people yeah. want to come to you. So I think that came that came from my mum, the understanding of that. And she sent me um, to, I went to a youth theatre with one of my mates. He really enjoyed being in the theatre and doing stuff. And so I went along and it was quite, I quite enjoyed it. I've always been quite comfortable in a room and quite enjoyed being a part of 
just being around people. And then I suppose within three weeks, four weeks of being going there a couple of days a week, just having a doss and round and a laugh like, <laughs> an agent came to see one of the girls that was in the youth theatre that was in Cheltenham and asked if I'd be on their books. And then two weeks later, I was filming a Christmas special in Miss Marple. It was like, you know, it was kind of like, all right, well, this is all right. And then I did, uh, you know, a few other bits and bobs. I played, a, I played a bully a couple of times in two kids' TV shows. I played a thief in After Henry. And I played the Miss Marple thing. I was a kid at Ballstall. So I played a Ballstall <laughs> character. Like, so it was kind of like, and then I played, um, the, the, I think the last thing that I did was in London's Burning. And I was, you know, I was <laughs> the credits as they go up at the end, my official title was Thug One. I was, I was, I, so it's kind of like I was playing these sort of parts, but it was all quite good fun, but it wasn't yeah. really for me. And I'm sure you've met loads of actors in your time, you know, the people that you've interviewed, and they're always really up when they've got work and they've got yeah. stuff that's going on and it's great. But when that show finishes or the work's got... That's hard. They, they have a, they, what have they got? They haven't got yeah. anything. And then they have to go, they enter the world of hospitality. Yeah. <laughs> Probably they go and work in you know, yeah. front of house or in a bar or whatever else. And you go, because that actor's life is quite disjointed, it's really not for me. I just want something pretty much standard and solid. So I ended up in a kitchen as an 18-year-old washing up. And I walked in that back door, just the energy, the atmosphere, the banter, the Mickey taking, the, the left field way of life. I just fell in love with the whole space. It's, you know? it's really interesting how many of us say the same, same thing. Ainsley said exactly the same thing. He walked into a restaurant and straight away people are taking the Mickey out of him, you think. I love this. Yeah. This is a world that, you know, that I just want to inhabit. And I remember the, the very first time that I worked in a restaurant, that exact same thing when you walk and you think, wow, this is magical. And even though it's hard work and it, it, back in the day it wasn't particularly well paid, you think this is just the most fantastic thing ever. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? You walk in there and there's uh, this incredible left field way of life. And it is, it is actually, was, it reminded me very much of being at school in the kitchens. It was quite um, hard. It was quite hard work and the people were, but it was all about banter and Mickey taking. And it was, and there was, you know, but there's things that are on fire and then there's knives and then there's adrenaline. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because you've got to be ready. You've got, yeah. there's, a bit of excitement to this yeah. this is quite exciting but i think the one thing that so many people don't really recognize about the industry is its professionalism and it's very simple there is a ladder structure through kitchens you know yeah. you start at the bottom as washing up maybe then you go to commie chef and the more you learn the better you get and then you run a section of chef to party and then you know so you go through and you can you can clearly see if you've <laughs> a career path you go okay i can get to that i can get to that i can get to that i can get there is a route to the top and you can see it it's not and it depends on you know different restaurants that you work in you could be a, you could be a head chef in one place but only a commie chef yeah. in another but however there is that kind of infrastructure that you can see how you can grow and that for me was okay this is quite clear it's quite defined it's disciplined but it is full of banter it's fun yeah. I'm, i i feel that i work i can work within these parameters but it is real left field. You know, you're working Friday nights, Saturday nights. You're going out to party all night long and then you're getting back in again Sunday morning, bright and yeah. early for breakfast. You do go to bed for three hours. It's not a job. It becomes a way of life. Completely. It, it's a yeah. complete vocation. You just are a chef or are a front of house manager or are... And 99% of your friends are in the same industry because otherwise they just <laughs> yeah. don't get it at all. Yeah. It, you know... <sighs> Really yeah, good. I always think with it, I don't think there's another industry in the world where you can start off day one as a pot wash and look at it and with, with really, really hard work within a relatively short space of time, you could be running a multi-million pound business 
I don't think there's many other industries where you could do that. No, I mean, you say short amount of time. It's probably 10, 15 years. Yeah. But, I mean, that is a short amount of time in comparable to many other businesses yeah. that you have to go for with zero in terms of education. And that, that, that is the other thing that makes hospitality for me the most beautiful industry to be in because it is so eclectic. It is so rich. It is so diverse. And it is the most it's the most friendly, it's the most inclusive, yeah. and it makes absolutely no difference of your race, religion, sexuality, education, monetary background, nothing. It just it really doesn't matter where you're from or your you, the colour of your skin or the it's just the religion you are. You just come in, everybody is in it for the same reason, and it's the most beautiful industry to be in. It's so embracive and embracing of everybody if you're there to work hard and give something back to the guests. I, I completely and agree. I, I think that, that whole thing, I remember that, again, that sort of starting point of the industry. And like you say, it doesn't matter. It's it's a utopian society where no matter who you are, what you are, what your background is, what you're interested in, it's incredibly inclusive. And like you say, it's about hard work and teamwork. Because I think that's the other thing. You know, you have one weak person in that team, no matter whether it's big, small size business, that weak person is as weak as you're going to be. You know, that's it. you can only be that strong as that weakest person. And it's so amazing. I just love it so much. And it's beautiful then when everybody in that team embraces and recognises the weakness of that person and then helps them to grow and encourages hmm. them. But those people that are weak, and we've all been there, everybody, the beautiful thing about the industry is you have to be rubbish at certain jobs because you have to get better at yeah. them and it's like anything you put yourself in a there's kind of a circle of I, I, I suppose um, how comfortable your life is and you know if you make it that comfortable you have to step outside that circle to stretch yeah. it don't you constantly you're constantly growing and stretching that, I suppose that comfort zone to make yourself better at everything and then as you get older you recognise the things that you're very good at and you yeah. go right I'm very good at this and I can build businesses around this I can do this but the best thing that I've learned, I think, over the whole years of being in the industry is what I'm not very good at. Okay, I'm not very good at this. I'm not very good at... Uh, I'm, I'm, Go on, then, tell average... us. What, what, what do you think you're not very good at? Okay, so I'm, I'm really good at the ideas and the, the vision of a business plan and an understanding of how a space should feel and sit. And a lot of that comes with working with Beth as well. That kind of So Beth's vibe. your wife, who's, who's yeah. a tremendous sculptor and yeah. also an incredibly intelligent, fantastic human being yeah. who, without Beth, then you and I wouldn't be sitting here now. <laughs> she's the one with the degrees in the brain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, but she's, got, she's incredibly visual. And between Beth's visuals and, uh, I suppose, my ability to be in the, the industry and be able to recognise what a room should feel, we're very good. I, you know, I can explain it between Beth and then her sisters in interior design. They create and make spaces. And I have an, I, I'm very good at going, OK, this is what I want. But actually putting the, uh, I, I suppose, the business forecast and the P&Ls and the idea, all of that sort of stuff together and then speaking to the accountant about it. I mean, I've done it. I've done it loads yeah. of times. But I don't enjoy it, and I don't, and I'm also not the best. I don't get, oh, this is exciting. Looking at <laughs> yeah. future proofing yeah, P&Ls, it's like, oh it. god. Yeah. So you know, so you bring people in in the business who love spreadsheets. Okay, yeah. you love a spreadsheet, my friend. This is the business we're going to do. Here's the creative. Here, this is what yeah. we do. So I like being part of the creative, the emotion, the drive. I love being part of the food process. That that for me, you know, the hand of flowers. Nothing changes there without me signing off, being a part of it. Yeah. But I also love. People. So I love people that have been with us. But one of the biggest things that we're so proud of is guys that have been within our business for so long. So pretty much every head chef within the business 
and every front of house person at each individual site. It's been with us for a long, long time. So yeah. we've got Lord Ez, who's general manager of Marlow. She's been with us 14 years. Katie, who's restaurant manager at the Hand of Flowers, 12 years. Jamie's head chef is nine. Um, and then we've got loads of other people at the Hand of Flowers that have all done uh, 10 years plus. Yeah. Then the guys at the coach, Tom, who's head chef there, he's been with us for eight years. Um, you've got George, who's been there for nine years. It's one of the junior sous chefs. We've got Nick, who's head chef in London, has been with us for over 10 years. Charles, 10 years, who's the sommelier in London. Like, And then Sarah, who's open Manchester as the head chef. She's been with us for uh, eight years. So there's a lot of people that have that. And I love the fact that you can let them grow personally, professionally, get on with it. They get the DNA. They know what we're all about. They're really happy to be about what we're about. But you can just go, go get on with it. Yeah. And we'll... We'll help you when it's wrong, but also praise you when it's right. Just go and learn, be a part of growing something. And that's something that we're quite good at. We're quite good at letting people grow and coming up with ideas in terms of putting them on paper and a spreadsheet. Hate it. All right, so you're not good at the spreadsheets. I get that. I'm, I'm exactly the same. Is there anything else that you, th that you think you're not very good at? I'm impatient. Yeah. I'm learning to get better at it. I tell you where I have got better at it is not necessarily being in the kitchen all the time. So driving the Hand of Flowers to two Michelin stars was very, so focused, so yeah. pinpointed, driven to the plate, to the guest, to the getting it, everything right. And that would be everyone who stood around me, I, I am fully in charge of it and I am doing it. And if you don't want to be a part, I couldn't, you can just be out the fucking door now. Like yeah. it's not like there was no, it would be so driven and so far. And I recognize now that moving on that that's great to get to a point, but when you become older and you become more of a team leader and a restaurateur and you can't have that, you cannot be that same person. You cannot be that not short tempered, but just shorter about everything. Yeah. You have to understand that processes, things take time, everything. There's lots of things that you've got to get into place. And I find that frustrating because I am, well, I want it done now. I don't understand now. Yeah. But, and we find up two of our businesses are within hotels, one in Manchester, one here in London. And to make those businesses work, you have to recognise that there are other dimensions in play. Yeah. That you have, to, you have to put all the kind of like, all the ducks in a row. You have to, it's like moving a Rubik's Cube. You just have to get, and it takes a little bit longer. It doesn't mean to say you don't get to where you want to, but you just have to get everything aligned and it takes a little bit longer. So I've got better at it. I'm still not great at being patient, but that is something that I'm learning. Which is funny because I, on a different level, you know, I've never kind of worked at the, the, the level that you operate at, but I just know from my point of view, I found when we had sort of three, four sites, I still wanted to be in charge of everything. I wouldn't let anybody have their kind of freedom, if you like. And I remember just one day thinking, you know what, I just need to look outwards rather than inwards and allow people to kind of have their legs and go, right, you know what, I trust you implicitly. You know, you're, you're a yeah. member of my team. I need you to be able to, at worst, kind of like, you know, hang yourself. I've got you know, rope to be able to do that. But in fact, what happened was the complete reverse, that what they wanted more than anything was to say, look, I love my job. I really want to kind of make this work. And it was such a liberating feeling. And it, it kind of sounds really that that's where you sit as well. 100%. It's amazing to sit. We've had people, we're, we're still a very, very young company. Some of the people that I've brought in in terms of growth are my age or a couple of years older. Oh, do you know, it. Tom? I'm 47. Yeah, so you're still a child. So, well, yeah, I mean, I'm still, in terms of having the, the Hand of Flowers for 15 years, you know, I opened it at 31 years old. You yeah. know, you go, okay, so it's now quite a, I've been in it, it that's quite a young age to open a business yeah. that gets driven to that point. 
So you look at, and the people that we've employed around us have always been, it's never been about experience, it's been about attitude, and that's so important. You know, there's, you know, the Hand of Flowers book that I touch on it loads, but but there's guys in the, that business that have come with us that have done years that have come from working at Virgin Mobile selling mobile phones or um, working up at John Lewis probing sausages to make sure that they've reached 80 degrees centigrade before they can serve them in the cafe. Yeah. So, I mean, they've come to us and they've grown and they've become head chefs and sous chefs. And that's all about attitude. It's not about, look at my experience in Mission yeah. Star Spaces. So allowing people to grow and those people to be part of that journey it is so, so important. And you have young people that come to you. And in that period of time of us being open, we've had young kids join us that have now met partners, got married, had kids. Yeah. You know, so all of a sudden, the responsibility then grows. So it goes from being, I'm just the chef at the Hand of Flowers, to being, okay, so I am now a business owner with all of these people that have entrusted over a decade of their life into our hands to get them somewhere where they've they've then taken the opportunity and grabbed every opportunity in front of them to get themselves somewhere and now they've got kids and now they've got mortgages and stuff and you go okay so we're now quite responsible for this but it's still in terms of the people that are operating it it's still young the people that the managers are still there isn't a manager that's 40 years old in any space yet yeah you know there isn't a head chef that's 40 years old there's an exec chef who's the same age as me and myself but apart from that, everybody else is still young. Yeah. still young, still driving, still a driving force of making. And that's quite exciting because it still keeps it feel vibrant and I suppose on point. Does that also influence where and how you will move forward? Like, for example, then you have a lovely girl called Danielle who used to work for me, who now works for you in kind of in on the marketing side, and the event side of the business in Manchester. And she she is also a friend of mine as well. And she says how much that personal touch she's got from you she never imagined that she would kind of get because obviously you know you're moving all around the country let alone just kind of different sites do you think that that is going to influence how big you would allow yourself to become yes and no because and that's really nice that daniel says that because it's really important to me and and this is why it's restricted because i can go i've got four spaces i've got four so-called restaurant. I've got lots of other businesses. We've got the festival. We've got the events yeah. business. We've got um, we've got the butcher's tap, which is you know kind of like a butcher's and a pub. There's the four restaurants. There's the Hand of Flowers and there's the Coach that are on the same road. That are in Marlow. I live there. And the Hand of Flowers is. I'm in love with every single brick of that building. It's it is my beating heart. It is everything about what everything else is built on. Then we've got the site in London which is so important to me because the dining room is so beautiful. We work within Corinthia Hotel where Thomas Cox is a great friend and the dining room is stunning. We've been able to get best work in there and it just feels, we were always going to open a London space and this is, it just sits so perfectly. And Corinthia, although it's a huge hotel, I suppose in terms of a group, there's, you know, nine moving to 13 or 14, like all the plans were until this year. We see what happens, what the fallout <laughs> is. But in terms of, it's a big hotel group, but it's actually still owned by Mr. Pisani. You know, it's still, yeah. there's, all right, there's been corporate money to be able to, to grow, but he's still the president of his own company. He's yeah. still his own. And there's that family vibe and lovely feeling to it. And then the Manchester space as well. That's very personal. Best parents, in-laws are not too far away. We, we, we do stuff with the football club, Manchester United, that I'm a big fan of. Which is We're, the only thing I don't like about it. I know, I know, I know. But, it, it, <laughs> you know, it, it, to let me onto this podcast, it, it must be, you must like me quite a bit to, like, to be able to have a Man United <laughs> fan sat here. But, um, but then that hotel is owned by, um, the hotel is owned by Gary Neville and Ryan Giggs. And you go, okay, so this, 
and it's a beautiful place. I love Manchester anyway. Beautiful. I mean, it, yeah. I love I love it. So all of these things are personal touch points. And then the people that we bring in and work in those businesses, I genuinely love being with them. I love going to the spaces and I love being with those people. So when you go there and you turn up there, and I, although I haven't been there for, or Manchester's still tier, tier three as we're talking about yeah. this now. So it's, you know, I haven't seen the guys there for ages. You still touch point, you say hello. And when you walk in, I'm genuinely so pleased to see them, that they're there, they love being in that space. And if that, just a hello and a fist bump or a whatever makes them go, oh, it's great here, then for me, that's so important. But that, you can't do that. The more you roll things out or you try to go, exactly. let's do that. Yeah. I, can't, I can't be in any more than four. Four's enough. If I needed to, I could do one a day a week and then gives you a day to do things like this. And you yeah. go, if, we, if we broke it down to being that simplistic, that's enough. That's it. Those places, those restaurants, they're personal. And that's where restaurants succeed because they have that personal touch. And that's because the staff feel that they're personally involved. Yeah. And, 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 and it certainly is the case. I'm going to skip over early bits of your career. Go to Cato College, blah, 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 blah. I said in the, in the intro to this that the book, White Heat by Michael Pierre White, the whole starting point for, for this podcast was you saying that that was a pivotal moment. So let's just take you back to. That moment when you discover that book, where are you? What 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 where, what point are you at in your in your career? So I was eighteen years old, and I was in a kitchen in the West Country uh, at the Painswick Hotel. It was called at that time, and my mum bought it for me as a birthday present. And it was when it was when the book came out, and you open this book, and I was at the same point I was going to college as well. But at that point, cookery books were either Delia Smith, so they were very domestic, yeah. but perfect. I mean, I think Delia's an absolute god. Same, I think she, yeah. she, I just, she, every recipe of hers works. Everything about it is amazing. And it, but it was quite textbooky, yeah. with lovely pictures. Quite formulaic, aren't Yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. And they're, they're lovely, but they, weren't, they didn't represent an industry. And then the industry books were like practical cookery, you know, yeah. and it's kind of like, okay, this is how to boil an egg and the exact science behind it and blah, blah, blah. And it felt, I felt like I was back at school. Yeah. So it's kind of like, so the cookery books are either textbook or kind of domestic um, shoe bun recipes. And you go, okay, there was nothing really that kind of connected. And then Marco's book came out and half of the book, I don't know if many people have seen it or, or not, but White Heat Cookery Book, all the photographs in it, were in it were taken by a guy called Bob Carlos Clark who at that point, he's a fashion photographer. Yeah. So the imagery was dynamic. It was exciting. Yeah. You opened the book and this energy came out of it, like the energy of cooking. Now, I never worked at Harvey's. I've got a lot of friends that have, but it, it was a great representation of the kind of over-the-top crazed kitchen that that was, the lifestyle, the behavior the 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 lack of sleep the amount of energy the process the the aura that marco gives off and that the, even the, the front cover of that book i'm not sure whether he looks like the coolest man on earth or the most frightening just that little feeling in your stomach yeah. i mean we've all had it on a saturday night yeah. when you're not ready and the chef's coming around and you're like oh my god oh my god oh my god like that sick feeling i'm in trouble here that we've yeah. got to get out of this that book gives you that spark and that energy and then the second half of the book are these magical most beautiful pictures of marco's almost timeless classic food yeah. and it, it's just such a special such a special book and all of a sudden you know and you've got marco there in a blue and white striped apron with scraggly air smoking a cigarette 
looking like shit and you go actually do you know what I mean but that is much closer yeah. to the reality of the world that we're working in yeah. and you know and then you're looking at Marco and going yeah and then they're going out and drinking afterwards all the boys yeah. in that kitchen are sitting in Wandsworth Park and drinking cans yeah. of Stella and being massive idiots until three in the morning and yeah. then go like you go this is the life that I am living I am in this I am in this book I'm in this world you related to it and went this is this is amazing and I want it more. I want more of this. I want more of this. And it was, it was such a special. And I think there's so many chefs our age that that book was such a special moment yeah. for that looked at it and went, this is who we are. This is what we are. It was, it was a great, great book. Do you think as well there's something about that book that it was almost the first time that the industry looked glamorous? You know, whilst, you, like you say, you know, everyone looks like scraggy and absolutely wasted and you can see, but it was a glamorous book. You look at that and go, this is rock and roll. Yeah, it, well, it is a glamorous book because the pictures are so beautiful at the back. The, yeah. the reality, you look at these kind of like <laughs> knuckle-dragging caveman-like blokes <laughs> that have got bags under their eyes and just look like just look like straggly, like super thin, overworked, yeah. crazed lunatics creating this magical, pristine, beautiful food. Yeah. And kind of like the juxtaposition of the two was just like, how on earth is this how on earth is this going on? I mean you look at it and you go, this is it's like a rock band playing classical music. And it's kind of like that it's bit really in the middle. You go, you go, I don't analogy. quite how do those two things fit together? And and I think that caught I think the general public's yeah. viewpoint of Marco is this amazing guy, he's this enigma. And before those days, you know, in in that point there in the early nineties when there was no social media. The only interviews that you would do, you do few, a couple every now and every year or whatever. So there's this kind of like the stories would emerge. And you, it was like Chinese whispers, isn't it? You hear them six times. Like, uh, the yeah. Marco's throwing people out of the, out yeah. of the restaurant. Yeah. or you know, And the same with Nico Dennis as well, that was at 90 Park Lane. And there was the two of them, you know, getting three mission stars at the same time. And this whole, you know, all of that kind of energy. And there was the Marco crew or the Nico crew. And it was all, yeah. but without... And this was all created, this energy was all created without social media. Yeah. I mean, it was, so you can imagine the kind of, I, I suppose, the, the, uh, the excitement and the angst and the, uh, all the energy and the spark coming out of those kitchens at that time must have like, spread so much through newspapers, through whatever else, yeah. that it suddenly caught journalists like, this is quite a cool thing to be writing about. And it also put British food on the map. Because, you know, you sort of think up to that point, we all look to our learned neighbours across kind of across the Atlantic, across the kind of the channel, Italians, the Spanish doing better food than us. Suddenly it's like, you know what? This is bloody brilliant. Yeah. This is this is the British food industry and it's fantastic. Yeah, well, he was the first British chef to win three Michelin stars. And he was the at that point in the world, the youngest to have done it as well. I think, you know, I think he was 32. So you go, you know, I mean, amazing, 32 years old. And you go and you're right. You looked at that. And it's weird, you look at that pyramid now and at the top of it, there are the Rue brothers. Yeah. Without the Gavroche, there's nobody. But then Marco worked at the Gavroche and, you yeah. know, Pierre Coffin was head chef there and Raymond Blanc. And then you got, you got Pierre Coffin and Raymond Blanc and, you know, the Rue brothers above them. And then you start going, and then it starts kind of like rolling out, folding out. Yeah. And you look at the Marcos underneath it as this British chef that's been through those kitchens. Yeah. That's then got three Michelin stars. And then you've got Gordon, who was in Marcos. Yeah. And then from Gordon, you then go, well, there's Ange and there's Steve Terry and then there's Jason Atherton yeah. and then there's Marcus Wary. And then from Marcus's and Jason. And it's now spreading out that Marco is, what is he, probably third down from the top of that yeah. pyramid. 
but he's the first in the terms of those British chefs and the way that it comes out. And it is spreading down. And it was probably the first point of British food being recognised around the world. Although Marco's food is very French. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. But he was out. a British chef. A working chef in a British it. in a British restaurant. Yeah, yeah, we're full of Brits in the kitchen. Yeah, you know, you know the guy that was cooking meat and fish. Yeah. was from the UK. You know, and you yeah. go like, this is amazing. You know, the same as Nico ki- Nick Kitchen. Yeah. The guys that were actually doing the the groundwork, the making the lemon tarts, or doing the you know boning the pig's trotters, or doing the whatever, they were Brits. And yeah. so all of a sudden you've got these great kitchens being driven by young British chefs that have then grabbed onto this career because of a book like White Heat. What did you do then to turn the Tom Kerridge who was kind of living that life but in a very different place to say, right, okay, I want a piece of that? So I I stayed around the West Country until I was around about 21 and I was working in Mission Star restaurants um, or Mission Star hotels. Um, And then I worked in somewhere called the Country Elephant, which was a really small 20-cover, tiny little front room style um, restaurant. It got a mission bib gourmand, and it was the head chef Rob and myself, and it was just the two of us in the kitchen. That was it. And you learned so much. It wasn't necessarily refinement, uh-huh. but it was because there's only two of you in the kitchen. You got to make twills and tarts on the pastry. You got to learn how to make custard properly, but also you're roasting beef and making Yorkshire puddings on a Sunday, or you're doing making a terrine at the sun. So you were doing everything. So I started getting a broader understanding of all those kitchen skills and realizing how difficult like to be in a top kitchen is it's not just about cooking it's now about actually the technique in each section is very very difficult so from that point I recognized that I needed to move into kind of uh, honing in and specializing in different sections understanding a pastry section understanding how to cook meat and fish so I moved into London when I was about 21 so I I I didn't so many chefs our age have traveled Europe and been to France and said I'd never wanted I only ever wanted to be in London my dad was from London so I'd never been scared of it as a city. You know, yeah. it's quite, it can be quite intimidating and quite lonely if you're not used to it or you don't, you know, getting on a tube for the first time and looking at the map is quite... Well, it's funny, Mar- Marcus Waring, when he was on, he said exactly that, that, you know, he moved down from Southport and it's like, I can't even compute what's actually going on with this city, never mind the work. Yeah, but for me, it was the only place I ever wanted to be. It was vibrant, it was exciting. This is where, you know, British chefs were beginning to make a name for themselves, great restaurants, people were cooking. And I went into the kitchen at the Capitol. At that point, Philip Britton was yeah. head chef there, so he had a mission star. And Phil used to be head chef for Nico. And it was got, so there was some great food, some great recipe. But I remember walking into that kitchen and going, my God, this is like a real... I open it now, it's busy lunch and dinner and it's quite, it's full on. And there's this nervous, quite horrible, frightening energy in this space. It's like, oh my God. And I remember How big's the team in there then, Tom? Uh, it was, at that point, I think it's probably about 12, maybe 15. Right, okay. So it wasn't massive. It wasn't a huge dining room, but it was, you know, over a seven day period, breakfast, lunch, dinner. It was quite a lot going yeah. on. And I remember, and everyone used to have to take their turn in breakfast. And I used to do, I remember doing... Saturday morning, I remember being on the pastry section uh, on Sunday on the breakfast pastry shift. And sometimes by the time you finish last desserts going, it'd be like half 12, one o'clock in the morning. So by that point, I missed, missed the last tube home. Yeah. The thought of getting on the night bus going home 
coming back in time for half five the next morning to so i used to i just so i used to just go and sleep in the changing room like so on a bench and just be like and then if you get a break in the afternoon i'd find all the dirty laundry bags and use them as like a pillow like i'll go and find them and have a little half hour snooze and i remember that being like normal like that's wow. my life just going yeah. uh, that's my life it's just like okay so i'll just you know I'm, i'll just how, how long then how long did that go on for so i was i was there for about nine months probably nine months maybe a bit longer and then I went into work into the West End I went into work at Stephen Bulls in St Martin's Lane so I was probably there a bit longer actually so I went into work at St Martin's Lane so Stephen Bull opened Stephen Bull St Martin's Lane which was two doors up from Stringfellows in the heart of Leicester Square and it was amazing but the hours it was a, it was in service more than you had mise on place time it would open at 11.30 for lunch for, for last orders were three and then it would open at 5.30 for pre-theatre and the last orders were 11.30 so you'd be in service more than you have time for prep but I, it was wow. a basement kitchen and it was by far the most grounding most pivotal point in terms of my learning Ever, because Johnny Bentham, who was the head chef there, was um, worked for Stephen before, worked at Fulham Road and, and Stephen bought Blanford Street. Stephen was one of the first British chefs to win a mission star. Yeah. So this was kind of his foray into London restaurants. And it the menu would change, not daily, but, you know, Johnny would, he's kind of like hyperactive. He'd come down the stairs and go, right, that dish we had on yesterday, we're changing, let's put something else on. Okay, yeah, one four, chef, lunchtime. It's like... What the what the fuck is like ten thirty now? Like you go right, make some raviolis of this, do this, and you just be running wow. around constantly. And it was, but it was amazing. And I remember you get there, I get into work, I, I'd aim to be in work by seven, and then sometimes because it's a basement kitchen, I remember the winter months. Beth used to because I met her when I worked there. She used to say that like in the winter, I, my, my skin would go grey because you get <laughs> you'd you never see any daylight. I wouldn't, I wouldn't see any daylight. I'd be like, you get there at seven in the morning in the winter time. Dave says, put all the veg away, get ready to go. Then you, you're ready to go by about twenty past half past seven. Go and then by the time you've done last orders at eleven thirty, then you know by the time you finish, it might be twelve thirty. By the time you sent dessert, you go like, "Whoa!" Off you go, and you come out, out out into the fresh air, out of the basement, and it's dark still. So you just be like, "I was just seeing, <laughs> just seeing darkness." But it was amazing. I was there for about three and a half years. I loved every single minute of it because of its location as well. So you know, it's next yeah. to Stringfellows. Like if you, I was a smoker at that point. If you were having a cigarette out the back. Right, the the girls would also be having their break from string fellows out the back. They'd be having a cigarette, and be like, "All right, ladies," they like they would be doing the same thing. And then when you finish work, you would go into. So my mate that I went to youth theatre with, yeah, he left um, Gloucester, age eighteen, and ended up being in Joseph and his amazing Technicolor wow. Dreamcoat with um, Philip Schofield, and then the re one with Jason Dunn. Like he ended up, he is in musical. He spent yeah. his whole career in the West End. He's now an agent in the West End. So he's like, so his whole career. So we would just like hang out in the West End when I finished for three and a half years every Friday and Saturday night and just go on the lash in bars in the West End like it would be hanging out with musicians and people in the theatre and chefs and and it was brilliant I loved absolutely every minute of it even though my skin was grey but that but that feels like you know from from coming back to getting the the, the white heat book as an 18 year old to live in that life you kind of you're doing it yeah. do, do you always look back and think I wish I had photo documentation of that life. You know, wish you sort of think the pictures you'd be able to have now. Unbelievable, 100%. I wish camera phones were around oh. then. Do you remember when they first came out and everyone went, what's the point having a camera yeah. on your phone? Yeah. And now it's like, my God, I wish I were. Well, I kind of harsh wish, like half wish. I There's bits of it that I go, oh my yeah. God, I'm glad no one knows I did that. Exactly, However, yeah, exactly that. But, but now to the way people go, what, you've got a camera? What yeah. have you got a camera for? I know, I know. But, but, but you were living that, you, you'd kind of, you'd done it then in terms of 
not just being about the food, about being that kind of lifestyle. You were living completely immersed dream. in a slightly rock and roll chef life. I was engaged to an artist. That we lived in North London. I was engaged to an artist that was working out of a studio in Camden, to uh, working in working in the West End, whose mates were in television and theatre. So it was this world of Brilliant. artists. Uh, musicians, theatre people and hospitality people. And this is, goes back to the same thing about when we talked earlier about it being the most eclectic, rich, diverse industry because you're there with, you know, drag queens and, and chefs and, and just anybody that is just hanging out, having an amazing yeah. time. There wasn't any, there's never, it was just being about, this is just brilliant. We're just living life in London, in the heart of it, beating soul of this West End and I'm doing food and they're doing musical theatre and they're di- and that person's in TV and this is an agent and that's a... And you're just going, it's, it was just brilliant. I, I know around uh, uh, around that time and being involved in, in that industry, that whole thing where you felt like, I'm part of the greatest secret that there is in the UK. Because you sort of felt that, you know, going back then, it was, it was far more unusual for people to work from home or to not have a traditional nine-to-five life. Back then, I thought you either had a nine-to-five life or you had our life. You had kind of like hospitality life and, and kind of theatre life and arts life. And you think, we had the best, you know? It was just incredible. You felt like, we're, we're doing stuff that you lot don't know about. Yeah. You, you know, you, you put your suit on and go into your office because we're having a really great time, but we're not telling you about it. Exactly. How boring is everyone else's life? And Mine is amazing. I'm yeah. working so hard. I'm getting adrenaline fueled kitchen stuff. I'm covered in burns, sweat, tears. I'm getting shouted at. I'm getting like this whole adrenaline craze and then I'm going and now I'm going out on the lash with all these other mental crazy people yeah. all of you that have just got normal jobs I mean what are you doing with your lives and people would always say <laughs> oh the, the problem with hospitality it, it, it's such an unsociable um, I say yeah the, the hours are unsociable but the social side of it is beyond compare there is nothing like it nothing. there is absolutely nothing like it it is but then I suppose that's when you can touch on the world of why hospitality does have so many issues with people with yeah. hedonistic style issues, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it, whatever it is that kind of um, encapsulates their whole life, that they fall out of slightly one side. There's that fine line between being professionalism and really sucking every last little bit of life and energy out of life, like using everything up. And then tripping into the hedonistic side, yeah. that all of a sudden the world, your work world, becomes about funding the other, the crazed side yeah. of it. There needs to be that balance, and that, and that is why the industry is full of people quite often that are slightly misfits of society, or people that do get find themselves into trouble, whether it's gambling or just anything that is slightly on edge, slightly nerve wracking, slightly we shouldn't be doing this, and it does, it does embrace a lot of people from those sort of backgrounds or with those sort of issues myself included you have to find that balance between the two you have to recognize it but it does make it an amazing space to be in well it does i mean you know you sort of think that whole thing the the great thing about service in really kind of busy busy restaurants is you feel on the brink of chaos and just trying to keep on that right side of chaos and like you say that leads you if, if that's what your personality is then it's very easy for it to tip so that that balance starts to go and then like you say it, be, it becomes difficult what i'm gonna do tom i'm gonna jump 
to Hand and Flowers. But before we get there, almost to give give us a little breather, we, we, have, we have a little challenge, right, every week. Okay. So this is, this is where um, you have 45 seconds to sell something to me. Right. So what you can do, you can pick any piece of meat, fish or vegetable. I need some kind of rub, I need some kind of sauce, and I need some kind of kind of cold side dish, all right? Right, okay. It's got to be cooked on a barbecue. Yeah. It can be anything at all. And I have to reveal here that normally with this, we give our guests a, a little bit of a heads up that this may well happen. Um, we forgot with Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is literally, if, you, if you've listened to Grilling before, then you know this. I mean, like, you know, your very, very good friend Paul Ainsworth did a magnificent job on it. But he did have a sort of an advance warning. So you don't. And no. I, can, I can honestly tell you, listeners, that um, we're not going to edit any time in between this. I am literally, <laughs> I'm going to get my phone <laughs> and I'm going to lob 45 seconds on it. And uh, we are going to have the, uh, the I'll, I'll give you a little count as we go. Are, are you, do you want, you want five no, seconds? Good. Let's just you go ready? with it. We'll right. freestyle, mate. Okay, right. Three, two, one, go. Short rib of beef, always the go-to, right? Because it is that beautiful balance between meat and fat ratio. And that slow cook, the fat renders it taste delicious. But the short rib of beef takes on stunning flavours. Dry rub, are using plenty of smoked paprika, dried garlic, and I've come across these amazing crispy chilli flakes that are in oil. 20 seconds. Rub, rub them, slow cook it in the barbecue. You make a sauce with a glaze of pickled onions, black treacle and beer. Oh. Right? Blended, pour it over the top, cook it for 12 hours, really low, slow. Take, then when it's ready, you remove it from seconds. the bone and you don't, you don't slice it really quickly. You slice it very slowly, like a Marks and Spencer's advert, and you see all the juices come out of it, serve it on the side. You don't need side dishes or a salad or a sauce, mate. Just a short rib of beef cut slowly. It did, it did 50 seconds that, but I'm going to give that, because that was that was glorious. <laughs> I, I, uh, I feel slightly aroused by that. <laughs> that, that was mega. Of course, you, you did a barbecue show. Yeah. How, how tricky was it? Or is it something that you've always done anyway, barbecue? No, uh, do you know what? It wasn't tricky at all it was thoroughly enjoyable i loved every minute i love barbecuing i love the idea of what you get from barbecuing and it's so much more than just throwing sausages on and burning them yeah like it, it, it's there's so much more to it it does take a bit of time and it does take a bit of practice of getting to learn your bit of kit but once you've got it and you've got control of it it really does create such amazing and stunning and beautiful flavors and we filmed that it's funny we filmed that during um lockdown so it was really, really quick because obviously TV companies like you know were running out of content, yeah. and no one could make anything because it was like, what do we do? So we created a COVID secure environment at the back of our offices and went, okay, well, can we do this barbecue show? Yeah, okay, let's put these recipes together. So we put it all together really quickly, and the crew were formed really quickly. And do you know sometimes when you make television, it's quite often overthought. Yeah, and the process and everything about it is quite. Oh, we've got to make it like this. We've got to do it like this, and it's got to tick a box for that, and it's got to make sure that we've got something for the vegetarians, and we've got to make something. We've got people who only eat fish, or what about something for the pork farmers, or what about? And you have to tick all these boxes. This had yeah. none of that. It went. What should we do? Yeah, we need side dishes. Yeah, we need this. Yeah, we need this. What about the crew? Uh, uh, who's Tom talking to? Because we can't have people in there. I'll talk. We'll cook, and we'll kind of half make it up as we go along, and let's see what comes out of it. And it was amazing. The energy that came from it was great. The people that were involved in making it was brilliant. And the recipes were just lovely and stunning. And it kind of sums up barbecuing, that it is a bit hit yeah. and miss. It's not overthought. It's not over-processed. We're not cooking mission-style meals here. The thing about barbecue is all about flavour and taste. Massive, And, yeah. and if, it doesn't matter what it looks like. 
you know, most of it is actually served in a bowl and you help yourself anyway. So who, who gives a shit what it looks like? Yeah. It's about does it taste lush? And that was and that came across with that show. So that for us it was it was a really important thing to do for my learning curve of going, actually sometimes TV is what a load of like tosh that we overthink it. You can make it so simple and so nice. But the dishes, the recipes were so lovely. And I think it, that does sum up barbecue, barbecue dishes. But because of that as well, do you, do you almost sort of feel, you know, even operating at the level that you operate at, you look at that, I mean, that, that dish describes sounds amazing. Do you almost look at it and think, okay, the, the, the level of precision that you'll always do with, with the hand of flowers and, and all of your establishments, do you look at it and think, sometimes that little bit of rough and ready, okay, you maybe refine it, but almost that barbecue process leads you to a different place. 100%. We actually, we take that process at the hand of flowers, the understanding of that rough and ready process, that kind of, Oh, not peasant style food, but that basic cookery of slow roasting and flavours and pies and just stuff comforting food that yeah. people know and recognise. I think it's so, and that's why the Hand of Flowers, I think, has been quite successful in terms of it hasn't alienated people. What it has done is meant that people have gone there. It might be their first experience of a mission style restaurant, but they can still have steak and chips or they can still have a venison dish. They've never had venison before and served with it as a lovely little pie. And they just go, all right, I get. It, it, there's nothing here I don't understand. I just yeah. gonna, I just have it, and we just do it really well. So it is, we do refined, but that basic style cookery. All right, now before we go on, we're giving away a Genesis Two gas barbecue and Weber Connect Smart Grilling Hub in every single episode of Grilling. Genesis Two is a premium gas barbecue that makes it easy to get great tasting food. The Smart Grilling Hub is an accessory which connects to your phone via an app. It guides you step by step through preparing and cooking, even telling you when you need to flip your food and when it's ready to eat. For your chance to win this fantastic prize, head to Weber.com forward slash grilling. That's Weber.com forward slash grilling, where you'll be able to find the terms and conditions and the closing date for entries. The competition is open to UK residents only. The Weber website is also the place to find a host of tips for barbecuing in all weathers and seasons, as well as a fantastic range of recipes. Let's let's do hand and flowers because obviously that that is the thing that made your name. You know, was Marco Pierre White is the person that you look to? So many people now would look to you, right? Two thousand five, hand and flowers. How did that come up? Where were you working prior to that? What's what's so, the year leading up to that? So I I left London. So we we were working. I was working at Monsieur Max, which is down in Teddington at that point with Max Renlund. And it was a two. It was a Michelin star French bourgeois cuisine. Beautiful, brilliant. Um, neighborhood restaurant, but super, super. You busy. had chef there, Tom, at this point. No, I was senior sous chef. Okay, and I go right. Okay, but I was, I was ready. I was ready for stuff. The head chef. I like. I was just ready to do stuff, and a job came up at Adlard's in Norwich, and that was a, a Michelin star rest, neighborhood restaurant in Norwich. And I thought, okay, well, this is. For my point, so Beth was working for Sir Anthony. Were you married to Beth by this point? Uh, by this point, I was married to Beth. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we got married um, year two thousand, which is quite good for remembering when your anniversary is. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we we got um we got to the point where Beth was working for Sir Anthony Caro as a technician, one of his chief technicians, uh, um, working in uh, bronze casting. But she also had her own studio in Islington. But she didn't have the time, but had the money. And right. it was like, right, okay, so what do we, how do we get to being able to get to that space? So this position came up in, in Norwich. So I, I went for the job, got it, and uh, went to be head chef in, in Norfolk. And Beth then had her own studio there. So she was able to create her own stuff and make, start making work. But 
Norfolk, North Norfolk, where we were living, is absolutely stunning. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the country. Like the, the, the beaches, the woodland, the everything about it was amazing. But the way of life was, I mean, I've just come from this crazed, yeah. hedonistic, <laughs> like uh, lunatic life. And I've gone to somewhere that was 15 years before our time. It was like, actually, this isn't, I kept the star there. I managed it. But it, the, the way of life just, I just didn't sit with me. It felt like I was going, if we're going to be here, it feels like we're just now going to be here forever. Right. I didn't, I didn't want that. I wanted energy and vibrancy and I wanted to drive it. So we started looking for jobs back in London. But Beth said, if you're going to, she was like, if you're going to just go and do 100 hour weeks, you may as well do it for yourself. So that was the point we went, yeah. all right. What a good idea. Let's do it for ourselves. So we had a little look around and found, um, we went for dinner at a place called The Trouble House. So it's a pub called The Trouble House in Tetbury. And there's a guy there who was cooking and he was and he had a mission star. You go, okay, well, this is yeah. quite an interesting thing. We went for dinner. We were down seeing my mum and it was about 20 miles away from my mum. So we went, I took Beth for dinner one night and we walked into this roadside pub. It was clean and tidy, lovely inside. Front of house said hello. They had um, jeans and trainers on sat down at a table, I had a mullet soup, I had a braised uh, ox cheek dish for main course and I had a souffle for dessert. And then you just go, this is amazing. This is br- beautiful food. But there was no pre-starters. Yeah. There was no Amos yeah. Bouche. There was no pre-dessert. There, was no, there wasn't 12 different types of petty four at the end. There was yeah. none of that. It was just like, it's some really good food. Hope you've had a lovely evening. It is hospitality done correctly. And I, it just clicked that night that yeah. we went, this is what we got to do. So we started looking at pub websites, looking for how to get it open, what to do. So we found the tenancy of the Hand of Flowers on a Green King website. And it was there, sat in Marlow. And we kind of half knew Marlow anyway. We knew Henley because it's not that far out of London. And I was like, that's it. That's the place. It's big enough for two of us to run. But it's also, it, there's enough room for there for it to be, to be able to grow. You know, I wasn't, if it was quite small and it was quiet nights, we don't need many people. It's fine. Yeah. It's just a husband and wife team. We can just try and make it work. But it could grow or could grow in terms of, energy and space but there's not a lot of room to the enterprise it's still the same small pub but you go okay well let's go and have a little look at it so we saw it instantly knew it was the right place took on the tenancy now when you take on a tenancy you don't own the leasehold you're not yeah. buying the freehold yeah. you're just kind of buying to be in a pub that you get to take the profits from you, you know you don't even own the lease you don't own nothing you're just there running it you have no sell on either do you no nothing so basically if you, you're not going to be there then you hand it back and whatever you got whatever success you made yeah yeah so we had to get in there and we had to buy the fixtures and fittings were about 30 grand and yeah. then you had to redo the kitchen because it was falling it was just horrible it was six microwaves in it it was just like so we probably needed around about it's got four microwaves now haven't you You've yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it needed it needed about 50 55k on it and we, I mean, we haven't got that money. Yeah. So we lied. So, so basically we went to the bank and said we were going to do an extension on this little cottage that we owned where we'd moved to Norfolk. We said we were going to do an extension. Uh, so we borrowed, they gave us 30 grand for that. And then we borrowed the rest on credit cards and basically just went, and then we, so then we opened it and then the bank kind of found out and we were like, well, we've now got the tenancy of this space. We've had to buy everything. We've done it. Oh, we're ready to go. You've given us the money. You can like call in the debt and everything just gets lost or you can, you can back us now. Yeah. Like, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's only 30 grand from the bank. But actually, 30 grand is a huge amount of money when you're 31 years old. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, everything yeah. you've got. You, yeah. can, you can either have the whole house and everything repossessing it. Yeah. And you've just, you've just, and they very fortunately, they went, all right, then let's see what happens where we're at in a year's time. So were you open then? Or did they discover it before you were even open? No, we were halfway to open it. And then we thought we'd better come clean and tell them, look, look, what, right. look what we've spent your money on. <laughs> like, they, they were look like, at this extension. Yeah. yeah. They were like, <laughs> 
all right, okay, we better talk about how we're going to do this. And we like, so we, then we then had the boring bit of the business plan and the yeah, repayment yeah. schedule yeah. and all that. And they went with it. And to be honest, within 10 months of opening, we won a mission star. You know, it was it was great. By the, by the end of that year one, we were fully booked on a Saturday for the following, a week in advance. Wow. You go, and that's great for a little neighbourhood restaurant. You're going, Michelin star, a week in advance. Yeah. This is, it's beginning to, so the bank were happy, everything, it was, yeah. it was all, but it is down to that, I suppose, tenacity and hard work and drive. And I mean, Simon, you know what it's like. Everyone's got oh. a story yeah. of working 48 hours straight or doing whatever, or just being, the moment that you open and own your own business, there's no such thing as a day off anymore. No. It's never a day off. You're no. never, there's always something to worry about. There's always constant fear listen we're both very very lucky that we've both got media profiles people know who we are people ring our restaurants because not only just because the restaurants are good but because they know who we yeah. are we're very fortunate in that but every day i bet you still fear every day that, particularly at the moment that, that the phone doesn't ring and it's going to end yeah. and you just go it, it's terrifying and that's every single businessman that runs yeah. their own business and it doesn't matter if you're in hospitality or if you're in computer science or if you're in waste disposal you know every day you will be worried that your business yeah. is going to go bump you know yeah. every single day as people often do when they when they tell a story on the podcast that is the story they've told many times they brush over really important things like you just said yeah we got a mission star within 10 months tom that's bloody amazing <laughs> so so did you expect it no I'd, I'd held the star for two guides at Adlard's and I rang them up mission and I sent them my CV and I said, look, this is where we're at. But David, Adlard's restaurant was um, a formal neighbourhood mission style restaurant with a pre-starter. Yeah. You know, and I was, we were going to a pub and I was doing shin of beef with a carrot and some mashed potato and I was doing a soups and terrines as a star and a kind of like creme brulee and bits and bobs as a dessert. And they, it was three of us in the kitchen and you were just going, this is it, this is all we're doing and we're not doing anything else with it. So no, I didn't expect to win a star. Not not that early. I knew the standard of where we should be cooking. And I did think that, well, all right, I'm not doing fillets of beef, but I'm doing the shin of beef, but it comes from the same quality animal. There's yeah. no reason why that should be looked upon any differently. But you didn't know. But Mission were very much, and always have been, about the food. But the angst that you get as chefs, you always think it's got to be about this, it's got to be about the tablecloths, it's got to be... It's not. It's about the quality of the food and the consistency of it. And over that period of time, that first bit, they, 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 they inspected us at least twice that I know of. Once they announced, once they came and had to announce because their car got broken into whilst they were whilst they were eating. <laughs> so they, had, they came back into the pub and went, um, our car's been broken into. So Beth went out to help tidy up the glass and he had all his Michelin stuff at the back and he was like, now you know who I am. So it was like, so I, I, I ended up then having to go and speak to him, going, "I'm so sorry about your car." Like I, like I, like, but actually, it was one of the best moments because at that point, then we had a normal conversation. His car's been yeah shafted. I'm having a chat with him. We're just, I didn't ask anything stupid like, "Are we getting a mission star?" Yeah, yeah. But it was just that conversation. It removed any fear or any um kind of nervousness that as chefs or restaurateurs you have about the Michelin yeah. guide and the people. He was a really lovely guy whose job was eating out in restaurants and just making sure it was all consistent and nice. And you just go, actually, the conversation with him was lovely because it made me go, okay, so if we if we get something, great. The fact that I know they've been twice then was like, okay, so they're, they're, they're coming and yeah. looking. So that's quite good. we just got to keep being consistent. And then at that point, the guide wasn't a big thing in terms of the, the, the release date. Yeah. wasn't always like they do now where you go and sit in a room and it's great and it's all a celebration. Then it was... There's no conversation. The guidebook comes out. It might get leaked on the internet the night before. 
and that's it. And you you don't get anything. And you go. So I got a phone call the night before the that guy came out in two thousand. It was the January two thousand and six. So we opened two thousand January two thousand and six. I got a phone call that evening from Daniel Clifford at Midsummer House. Yeah. So he's very good friends. We've been friends for a long time. So Daniel rang me. He went, have you seen the internet? You know Daniel. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. You've seen the internet? <laughs> no, mate, I've just finished service. It's midnight, I'm just cleaning down. We better go and look at it then. Why? Because <laughs> you want a fucking star. I was like, what? Oh, no, no, I'll call you back. Like, it was like, it was yeah. like you know, like a Daniel yeah. conversation. It was yeah. just, but it was brilliant. I mean, actually, it's, it's wonderful that the news that we got it was from Daniel. You yeah, know, I yeah, love, yeah, yeah, I yeah, love yeah, that. Yeah. I love the fact that, yeah. you know, I think that all of those sort of things you look back now, like you talk about yeah. bits of history and, and, and things that you can remember and you go, yeah, and you look at one of Britain's best chefs ever Daniel Clifford yeah. ran me to tell me you know yeah. and you go all of these points are just great you go this is you know so it was quite an amazing thing to have achieved but what happened so the, the immediacy after that because I mean the restaurant was already busy anyway what happens that next day when it's announced does it go crazy no I think that, that there's an initial two or three weeks of excitement and local press and bits of press that want to say congratulations and stuff that happens that people are really pleased for you and we're already in an area where there's the fact that the waterside in there was yeah. you know there, there was all these great restaurants the man was just around the corner now there's this little mission star pub which was great because a lot of the staff from all those restaurants on their days off would start coming to us and there was a so there was this really wonderful I know we were talking before we started recording about how some chefs were very combative against each other yeah actually where we were it was really embracing Heston sent us an amazing bottle of wine Michelle Rue came round and said like it was all this Lovely. you know Monsieur yeah. Blanc's been loads of, and it was just this wonderful energy of people surrounding it within the industry and loving it and it was great and it was busier but the the turning point that turned it into something quite crazy was the the Great British Menu was television. Yeah. And at that point, two thousand and ten, which is when I did Great British Menu, that's the point where that show and TV in itself is it's different now. It doesn't have the same no. quite reach as it used to. At yeah. that point, ten years ago, Great British Menu was a, is an amazing show for showcasing food up and down the country, different regions, yeah. different parts. I went on it and um, was fortunate enough to win and didn't, I don't think, come across like a massive dickhead, which was, they were all, they were all massive bonuses. Oh, and then I'll the phone just let me cross out this question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on Great British yeah. Menu, why did you come across such a massive dickhead? I'll, I'll just cross that one out. <laughs> yeah. But at that point, that was when it reached out to people that they saw that you could eat in a pub and have a mission. So, so yeah. we talk about we can turn up in jeans and t-shirts and just yeah. go and have a nice time rather than feeling that you've got to be a special. Of course, it can be a special occasion. Yeah. But actually, you can just go and have something to eat and it'd be good food and it'd make no difference. So you've got your one star, great British menu. And then two, one of the things that I have a conversation in the past with people who have got a star and quite a lot of them have said that there was a certain part of it. Then they became a little bit fearful. That they'd almost set the stall up. And I don't think you ever really set your stall up to say, I want to get Mr. Star. You want to have a fantastic restaurant. The, the star was almost kind of incidental. But some people who've got star then said, I felt it stopped my creativity because then I became scared of losing it. Yeah. That almost losing it would be, you know, almost harder than kind of getting it really. Yeah. And yet you, you then kept moving forward. So, so what gave you the difference between the one and the two? See, that's a very difficult question. And I think that's very hard to differentiate i think the one thing you can look at with every two-star restaurant is that if you put a plate of food in front of us here from each chef from each two-star restaurant we could probably say what are there 22 two-star uh -huh. restaurants i reckon we would get at least 20 of them right of going that's 
Brett Graham's, that's Sat Baines, that's Claude Bozzi's, right. that's Claire Smith's, that's mine, yeah. that's Nathan Outlaw's, that's Daniel Clifford's. I think you could tell there's an individual, and it's correct, beautiful cookery, it's all done, but there is that sense of individual personality that you suddenly go, yeah. that's the point of difference and that represents it. And it, consistency is about everything, but I do think there comes, I think you have to come out of, because there's so many mission star, if you put, however many hundred Michelin-star restaurant chefs got them to put a main course of food up, told them to do their duck dish, I reckon 50 of them would be fairly similar. Similar, yeah. Not that they're saying that they're, they're no good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're amazing, they're delicious, they're beautiful. But I think th- there's the point there where chefs, you remind yourself of how you got to be in to a Michelin-star level. And you go, well, as long as we hit all of those points, that's fine, we can grow from there. You have to become not fearless, Probably it's the other way around. You have to not give a shit as much. <laughs> yeah. You have to go. Yeah. Actually, I'm just gonna. Yeah. Just gonna be me, and we're just gonna. You you remember it always has to be consistent. It always has to be right. It always has to be crisp and clean, and it has to be the best produce. And your own personal standard has to hit there. But you have to be able to go. Actually, I'm gonna cook like this. A prime example now is somebody like Claude Claude mm-hmm. Bozzi at Bebendum, and you go. Claude's gone through many years of being at Hibiscus and then moving Hibiscus to Mayfair and and cooking incredible two mission star food. Yeah, but actually, I think it's probably only the last two or three years that he's been at Bebendum that you've just gone. He's gone. Ah, interesting. I am. This yeah. is where I'm at. This is this is my food. This is my lay. This is where I'm the most comfortable. I am French. I'm a big Frenchman that cooks r- chickens whole on a rotisserie, but we serve it like this and we do it like. And you go, I get, I you get it now. That personality becomes more. And I think I can't definitely say I'm not the mission inspector, but I think that's the point of when you go from one to two. You look at somebody like Paul Ainsworth who. I put my hand up here and it may be a little biased. I've known Paul since he was 18 and we're best buddies. But his food the last 18 months, two years at number six has just become much more Paul Ainsworth. Interesting. It's become much more. Paul has to be very close to that two-star level. And there's a lot of great chefs. And then you look at someone like Niall Keating who's done so well at Watley Manor and the young chefs that are coming through and doing really well. And I think, you know, we're a really exciting place for food. This year I know it's been very dark in terms of the hospitality world. But in terms of young chefs or chefs taking it on to the next level, there's some incredible cooks out there. I, I now have to remind myself that I'm like old now. I'm like one of the old <laughs> lot. You know, it wasn't before, but I am now. There are now chefs underneath you that are coming through and doing well that you go, okay, you have to put your hand up and go, great, okay, well done. You know, that keep pushing you. That's the greatest analogy because it, I can say I've never worked at that level, but I get it. I completely get it. I think of, you know, the the the... The two-star place I've eaten at, I think, you're yeah, absolutely right. It's almost like it's an unknown quantity. You know, yeah. the, the standard cook obviously is exceptional, but there is there's something, it's a personality thing. Yeah. It's, it's, brilliant. it's being relaxed enough to put your personality on the plate, yeah, but professional enough to drive it from that one-star level, I think yeah. is probably the best way of describing yeah. it. I, I want to I take you to a point where, I, I mean, I've known you for a long, long time, and I suppose the vast majority of people, since your kind of media profile, they see... Boy band Tom, as I've always called yeah. you. So you know, you 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 know, you you've lost a, a huge amount of weight. You've changed your lifestyle at all. But I want to take you to that point where I remember you and I being at the AA Awards one night and drinking a lot. But I remember you would go to the bar and order three pints for yourself rather than one. When did, were you aware that maybe, maybe 
you were a little bit. Uh, we talked before about that balance between excessive. Yeah. Um, now I've always known. Yeah. It's been I've had excessive behavioural issues, yeah. and it's a lot of it is to do with quantity and and volume and i don't just mean like a volume of drink just volume of ever volume noise volume of stupidity volume of just <laughs> just everything has to be bigger yeah. the mo like it's always been so that drinking point was um yeah i mean those were points where i would be drinking uh three three pints to everybody's one yeah. or you know i would go into a bar and order a bottle of gin and they go a, a bottle of tonic and a gin no 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 a bottle of gin and 30 tonics please and you just just wow. everything we would just be so stupid but it's weird because i look back at it now and i haven't drunk for oh, 7 years now and it was a point where I recognised that it was, it's clearly an issue. It's an age thing as well. As you get close to 40, I think you go, yeah. you know, you, you start looking back. And I know when people are in their 20s and 30s and people say, oh, yeah, when you get to 40, you go, yeah, yeah, whatever you're talking about, granddad. But actually, when you get there, there is a point of reflection. You go, well, I am 40. Where am I in my career? What have I achieved? What have I done? Where do I go? So you start, that. there was that point of self-reflection. But also it got to the point of going, I, it wasn't a health reason. I mean, I was clearly unhealthy, but I hadn't, there wasn't a health scare or yeah. a thing. It was just a case of going, I actually need to get to grips with this shit here because it was, I recognize that it was all about being self indulged. So that moment of drinking, and we all know when you get drunk, there's a peer, there's a point where it goes from beyond being with your mates to the point of going, coping with the the rest of the night how where are we going what are we doing and it becomes yeah. about you it becomes you focused rather than outwards focused and i was always looking for that moment of going right. where am i what am i doing self-indulge it's the most selfish space to be getting super pissed because you are you are trying to be in your own world of chaos and and i massively miss that in terms of just the I don't miss everything else that goes with it. Yeah, but I miss that self-indulged craziness. I miss the stupid times. I miss the I, I miss them massively. But then I I get different releases from different ways. I think that's a very honest thing to say there because you know I, I obviously being in our industry I know plenty of people who've kind of who've given up drink. Yeah, but I think there's almost they're afraid to say that they miss it. You know, yeah. to say and now I don't do it. I don't miss it at all. Whereas yeah. I think it's a very Braves maybe far too kind of poncy word to say, but you know I think it's a very honest thing to say that yeah. you miss it. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's the same as I mean smokers. There'd be plenty of smokers out there that ex smokers that go, no, it's the most disgusting thing. I hate it. I'm an ex smoker. I haven't smoked for 15, 20 years. But you go, I still love a cigarette. Yeah, you know, and I I love it. I miss it. You know, I'm quite in some ways. I, I feel I'm quite lucky in terms of I miss the chaos and and everything that it brings. And it was alcohol. Because it could quite easily have been, so it could have been coke, it could have been, yeah. like it could have been any form of drug, it could have been, and you go, and that's very, that's much more difficult because it, I, I think that takes you down a completely different path. Alcohol is something that's social. And in some ways people have been able to go that you can take that away. It's, it must be very difficult to, for that to be part of your life if that's where you're at. But actually I've been able to, because it's my life, because I sell it, because it's part of my job, Yeah, I put it as a, product of what i do you know i see it as i've got a shellfish allergy right yeah. so i see it's the same thing yeah. you know i do shellfish no i can't eat that that's all right is it is it the best lobster i can get is it the most amazing thing have we cooked it beautifully and properly great serve it is this the best wine we can get is this beer well looked after is the whole thing great perfect let's get it out there is it gin is it something that you go is it yeah. something that we can be so proud of doing brilliant so i i found it easier to remove myself from it and then i find self-indulgent 
stuff comes from workload now i get i become self-indulged in work i constantly say yes to things i'm ne- i'm always always trying to i'm always working <laughs> yeah but did you but did you stop drinking or did you kind of think i need to cut down no stopped right. i had a plan it was a it was a run up to a point and i knew it was going to be about back january the 6th 2013 that i just went right that's it that's when we're stopping and it was that day it wasn't new year or wasn't whatever because i knew that i had loads of things planned and it would taken about six months of going right this is where we're going to get to i know it's coming i have to make this decision i consciously have to take this out of my life and i'm going to get to this point here and not drink because every day was drinking every yeah. day every day every day so the first day of not drinking was horrible like and it's been and it was the first six months were horrible like really really difficult and in that first year i think i fell off the wagon twice once for my 40th birthday but it was kind of always half planned yeah actually no three times one was in the early <laughs> doors where we went to see a gig but just me and beth and it, it it went it just went chaotic we were staying at a hotel in bristol and i was drinking bottles of port at three in the morning it was like Jeez. beth was like you don't even drink yeah. port. i was like I do now it's like, <laughs> it's like, and then the next day i was like oh my god right now back on it once then was my 40th birthday that i was going to drink for that evening but it actually turned into a five-day bender, which like it was, I was, and I was like, and then once more, I was in Singapore um, when I, I flew out there working, yeah, and two of my chefs were out there already setting up, and I got there, and one of them went, "Come on, have a beer." I went, "No, no, I'm not even. No, I don't." Tell you. I had one beer, and it turned into like four days of absolute chaos. And is that the thing? Do you still feel that would happen now? Oh God, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I can't. I, I just know it would. I know it would. I just go. I can't be a part of it. I can't. There's no in between. I'd have it now and just go. Oh come on! I've just had one. It's like if you're trying to lose weight and you don't you don't want to eat and you go, you wake up in the morning. I don't know. You have a biscuit. Yeah. And you go. Oh fuck it! The day's done. Then I may as well have ten biscuits. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's just like yeah. It's the same as that. If you have if I have one drink, I know that'd be it. Would just be like I can't. I, yeah. It's I'm, and I know that. So you know because I've been on the show with him, Russell. Yeah. So we're good friends, right? So we live quite close to each other. We text each other. Every Russell now Brand. And then. Yeah, yeah. Russell Brand. Yeah. yeah. So so we're, <laughs> so I was telling him a story about. One period where I wasn't drinking, I met Beth on a Saturday night. We went into a bar in Marlow, and it was about nine thirty. I, I sneaked out of work. I met her, and we, I went into the bar. And Beth had a glass of wine, and it was busy and bubbly like that. And I went, okay. Uh, and I, Beth said, "Why don't you have a Bex Blue, one of those non-alcoholic beers?" I was like, "Well, yeah, all right, maybe." And it's see, it's not the alcohol; it's the association. I had one bottle of Bex Blue. I had eight bottles in 20 minutes. I was on it. I was on it. I was just like, the smell, the thing. I was just like, yes, come on, we're on it. Yeah, come on. It was like, there was no alcohol in it. It was just the whole chaotic thing. I mean, Beth, wow. was, I was telling this to Russell, so, and he just went, you know, normal people don't do that. <laughs> yeah. I, was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, so if Russell's telling me that, I go, yeah, no, I recognise I'm not going to get, I won't go there again. Do you think now that, now that, now that that's out of it, do you think it has, has changed the way that the business has gone? And clearly like your media career, like, you know, you, you, you're a natural on TV without a shadow of a doubt, but you think from a business point of view, you would be as successful as you are now if you hadn't given up. No, absolutely not. No, but I, but I would still be, we'd still have two mission stars, and we'd yeah. be in, in, in this cra- in this crazed world of driving it forward and being a part of it. The reason why we have done other stuff is because I've grown with the people that have grown with us. The business, we, the, the businesses have grown with you know Nick opening the coach or then moving on to London or whatever. As so we've got well, okay, let's do this, let's do this. So the chaos comes from business planning and doing stuff, and yeah. let's get creative and being. So no, most definitely we wouldn't have. Because I would have been focused on getting as many largas down my throat as possible, but it was a, it, it turns into the the other thing. So yeah, the busy. So it's been great 
for that point of view, have given up in terms of business. I probably, we'd probably still be doing, I was doing TV while still being that person. So, you know, we were doing television and books and stuff whilst I was that person. It was just, that's grown more whilst not being that person. It's probably, you know, the world of TV, they don't like um, variables, do they? They like it quite controlled. Yeah. They like, so if you can, if there's a person that's probably in control of their life, it's a lot easier to <laughs> put in front of a camera than someone that's not. But, there, but there's something very charming though about, your story you know it's a tremendous story in terms of success it's a tremendous story in in overcoming an addiction and then that driving it forward and then like successful books that you know you all of the kind of all of the diet books that you've done have been amazing because they work because you're living proof of it because you know you you're half the size that you were literally yeah but you still got the same as everybody else i'm now like a 47 year old man that has to find that balance between eating and then eating shit and then going on pie tastings because of the business but going to the gym and doing like yeah. it's that constant roller coaster of finding but that's a much better place to be than just being in the excessive space see some people that are just constantly on the fitness thing and just eating straight foods and on it their lives actually if you speak to them they're 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 a little more complex than you think people it's more it's more normal i think to be up and down than it is to be super fit super healthy super because there's something else there that's going on that's not quite on the same level that people that are on the excessive vibe it's it's much more we're more on this kind of rolling wave aren't we yeah and and telly's good fun like i said you know you you, you're a natural on it you know it it, the the camera loves you you know the 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 warm person that you are sitting here is exactly what you are on telly and i know from many conversations you've had in the past that you feel about the same way i do that it's a great vehicle it's really good fun to do you're not driven by the trappings of fame. Don't get me wrong, you know, being on telly, the thing opportunity it gives you is amazing. It opens doors that you would never imagine. But the process is fun. Yeah, the pro- I, I enjoy making television. I enjoy making TV. The process of being, the thing that people know who you are, a fame thing I really am uncomfortable with. I'm not a big fan of it. I don't like, but I have to, I embrace it because it's what I am. I then feel the responsibility because we have the staff. The phones have to ring. The businesses have to drive. And then, because I found myself, like I say, prior to this, I'm on a big Zoom call about a Minister of Hospitality and you're going, actually, I've now found myself with a voice that's in hospitality. I now feel responsible. I did question time last week. Yeah. Right? So I did question time last week and it's the first time I've been asked to do it. So I thought, yeah, I'll do this. And I went on and I went on going, I don't want to come across looking like a dickhead. And that's fine. You go, okay. Look, no one does. Yeah. And if I was talking about anything else but hospitality, I don't think I would have minded. When you do cookery demos, when you do, like, yeah. it doesn't matter. You're just doing it. You're messing yeah. if it. If it all goes wrong, it doesn't really matter. These things, yeah. it, it, you just make, it's fun. Question time, I felt the responsibility before it went on air, before it, I felt the responsibility of 3.2 million people's lives in hospitality. Yeah. I felt, do not be a dickhead here. Do not make hospitality look bad. Do not look like a spoiled child. Do not look like a... You You have to get this point across of how bad hospitality is. And that was, that was the first time in television or from a point of media that I felt hugely responsible for my position that has kind of been created through good fun. Yeah. Like saying yes to stuff and doing things. And all of a sudden I'm going, now I find myself in a position of responsibility and I haven't meant to be there. No one's asked me to be this voice of hospitality. No one's, no one said, will you go and do this? And like question time asked me to go on. I go on. And then I, but then I recognize that I've just done a show on pubs. I've done a thing. And, and those words resonate. If I was to say something stupid, it would affect the whole of hospitality. Yeah. And I felt the pressure for, for question time. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think it went down quite well. The reaction. Yeah, you were fantastic on good. it. Yeah. But, and I wished I'd got more across and I wish I'd said, but, but I went, okay, it was fine. We put hospitality in its position. So I hate the idea of being 
famous. I hate the idea of people knowing who I am. Uncomfortable with the position I find myself in <laughs> of talking about hospitality. But now I feel that I have to do it. I have to. We're in this position. There's so many people's lives and responsibilities here that isn't just a, it's our staff, it's your staff, it's yeah. Marcus Waring's staff, it's Paul Ainsworth's staff. It's all, you know, at that. And when you're asked to do something like that, you do it and you say it because yeah. you recognize it. When Marcus Waring is asked to do it, he does it and says that Angela Hartnett, big voice for hospitality. When they're asked, you go, because it's not just about, you're not now trying to get the phone ringing in your restaurant. No. You're now trying to protect people's lives, livelihoods, and help drive things forward. And that, although you find yourself in that position, is one that's quite uncomfortable. It's one that I, would I relish and anything to make people feel and understand how important hospitality is in a, in a bigger picture? I would quite happily have that conversation. And you you do it well, you know. I I think as well that there isn't a chef that you could ever speak to who doesn't have the utmost respect for you, and that that is down to all of those contributory factors. One of the biggest things, and I learned this from. Chris Evans, we've done bits and bobs on Carfest for years and done things and done his TV show and he now lives in Marlow and I've known Chris for a long time actually. We met on a different table at a lunch somewhere where we were a load of chefs on the piss and he joined in and it yeah. was great. And, it, and I, so I've known Chris a long, long time. But the conversations that have been in Chris's career, media career has been up and down and all over yeah, the place yeah. and been loved and hated and like made loads of money, lost an absolute shed load of it. And cons he's constantly on this roller coaster of just doing stuff. And I love that. One of the best things that he said to me is no matter what happens, you disarm everybody with honesty. Yeah. There is no point in pretending this Great. or like, like if you are just straight and honest and tr true to yourself, People make that judgment on you. And if they don't like you or whatever, it doesn't matter yeah. because you've just been honest. And it's one of the first things that I thought, well, if I'm ever going to go on TV, do Great British Menu, yeah. you just be straight and honest. If you go, you know, if you go on uh, uh, Sunday brunch, you just go on there and be straight and honest. You go on Question Time, you'd be straight and honest. There, yeah. there was no point in me going on Question If they'd asked me a question about, I don't know, the ins and outs of the Brexit trade deal yeah. or what do we think about how we're moving forward regarding selling arms to Saudi Arabia, I'd be like, do you know what? Just, <laughs> I don't really know. I'll just, just cross those. <laughs> <laughs> but you go i would have to be honest you go i don't know the ins and outs of that i yeah. have to be honest you know however you know you've got to be honest. i can't go in there and pretend that i know what yeah. i'm talking about you have to be able to find yourself and just be true to yourself and i think that's the same in, in, in any world but what you've also what we've also done is we've learned to be able to i suppose communicate in a way that resonates with yeah. a demographic of people that you just go right this is this is what i've got to say it's honest and if you guys are listening to it yeah. you know the demographic they listen to yeah. sunday brunch or watch sunday brunch and come to the restaurants the same demographic it's a similar yeah. it's it's people yeah, it's yeah. people yeah it, it, it's a people business all right I, you know i could i could talk to you all day we're, we're going to go from kind of a, a serious thing to um to Something that we ask all of our guests to do. I want you to give us um, a little secret place. Basically, it can't be it can't be a posh restaurant. Yeah. Um, it needs to be whether it be a little coffee shop, whether it be a sandwich shop or a patisserie. It can be anywhere in the world, but it's somewhere that when you want to find that little happy place, you say, oh, you know, what? I really love that bacon butter that had blah 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 blah. Where are you going to take our listeners to? So there's a couple of places they if they wanted to get on a plane and go to Singapore. There's a there's an area in Singapore called the Geylang District, and it is it runs um, it's kind of like a ladder in terms of the roads, the structure of it. 
and there's kind of like street food vendors and then hookers and there's street food vendors and then hookers. It's the street. There's, a, there's, it's the a, there's street, a theme running through this entire street, podcast. Carriage. It's the street food vendors <laughs> that I'm talking about. But I went with a load of chefs and it was brilliant. And we, a, a chef took us out there afterwards. And we went to this and we sat on this table and it was a little alley called Rat Alley and I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but I've been there twice. And it is literally plastic seats around a table. And the chef, literally in a, an area no bigger than what we're sat in now, wow. was cooking stuff and things like clay pot pork liver and, and, and these deep fried kind of like aubergines with sesame. Just so much of it was just one of those magical chef moments. Three yeah. in the morning, sat here eating this incredible food with a load of blokes chatting about food from around the world. And it didn't matter Beautiful. where you were from. The, the guys that were cooking in Singapore, some were Malay, some were Indonesian, some were Singaporean, some were, you know, there was us Brits and we were all chatting and about food from different parts. Of, and it was that chef connection. That was a magical, oh. magical moment of food. I've had another one like that, which was in uh, a taco place in Tucson in Arizona, which uh -huh. was just like chopped up beef. And I don't know what bits of it just cooked on this mesquite coals, chopped up loads of salsa in this kind of place. It was so kind of, I mean, it was scruffy and dirty and greasy and horrible, <laughs> but the food was amazing. And it was because the building, the yeah. small little taco shack created those flavors. It's like when your nan does Yorkshire puddings yeah. and you don't, you're not allowed to wash them afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got years of just Yorkshire pudding yeah. flavor in the Yorkshire pudding tray yeah. that you just go, it, that building was just like wow. a Yorkshire pudding tray. The flavors were made, the smell, just everything about it was great. But I think probably in this country, one of the greatest little restaurants is a place called Jojo's in Tankerton near Whitstable on the North Kent coast. And Nikki is the chef there. She's got this uh, uh, kind of, she again has an open kitchen and a team of misfits that are cooking <laughs> tapas style, grilled sardines, bits and bobs, things that are just, yeah. and it's such a, a brilliant, I love the North Kent coast. I, there's some great restaurants there. I love, I love Whitstable. I love Sea Salter. I love the food over at Canterbury Way. But this restaurant, it's on the coast. It's accessible. It's not, there's, it's not posh in any way, but the food is fresh, quality, brilliant ingredients that is just delicious. And it's such a simple, I go, you go, I go there with my little man, you go there with, you just sit there. He loves eating there. It's just everything that a perfect restaurant should be. It's, it's amazing. Ta uh, Jojo's in Tankerton is his favorite go-to place. Beautiful. You know, it, it, it's the joy of doing this is that I always sort of find things out like, you know, you and I have been friends for a long, long time, but to sit and actually chat about you for this period of time it is just wonderful. But I have to tell this story that um, when I had, I had a pub in Liverpool, when I had the elephant and Tom was doing um, a festival up there. So I said, look, you know, you've got to come. The boys are dead excited that, you know, that you're going to come up, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, OK, listen, he said, All right, look, I'm in a cab now, I'll come up. And um, so it's a busy, busy pub and we've got like another restaurant. We've got a pub and we've got a restaurant. So you can come and see it. And uh, Tom gets out the car and being Tom, uh, he's there, he's got a hoodie on, he's got his trainers on and he looks like a proper thug. Going back to what you said, all, all the things. <laughs> he looked was, like the extra yeah, from, from all, London's Burning. All the things, all the things he was cast as a, as a child actor. And he gets out the car and I'm just sort of like chatting to somebody outside, know that he's arriving. And I can see the guys who are bouncing the door going, he's not getting in. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't have to pull out the "Do you know who I am?" card. But I was just like, Simon said it would be alright. <laughs> Absolutely, Tom. It is always.
always, always a joy to spend time in your company. And also, you know, your, your beautiful wife, Beth, and your little boy, AC, are just like fantastic human beings. You deserve every bit of success that you've got because aside from anything else, you're just one of the loveliest human beings on the planet. And Paul Ainsworth tells a great story of how you and Beth went and surprised him when he got his mission star and took him out. And that's very much what you are about. It's been a joy having you on Grilling, mate. Thank you so much. And good luck as the new Minister for Hospitality. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, the next, yeah, my ne- I'm moving on to the next conversation, which is about Brexit trade deal talks. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you for joining Tom and me on Grilling. It's always a joy to spend time with him. Hopefully, we've given you a few ideas as to what's possible in the kitchen and on a Weber grill this winter. Head to Weber.com for plenty more recipe ideas, and I suspect Tom would approve of their slow roast pork belly with caramelised apples. Delicious. And if you head to Weber.com forward slash grilling, not only will you find details of the competition, you'll also be able to get a free barbecue Bible cookbook with the purchase of selected accessories. Subscribe to Grilling on your favourite podcast app, rate us and tell your friends about us too, please. Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, and it's an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer Zach Brown. I'm Simon Rimmer. Thanks for joining us. Hold up. 